Is this another Christmas episode? Yeah, sure. And then we have to do pretty much enjoy this the entire time. Okay, let's do this. Is this really episode 31? This is 31, yes. Of podcasting. Of podcasting, yeah. And not no. even counting the intermissions. Like, wow. uh, the intermissions I counted as like 29A, B, C, D. Um, like, personally, I felt like at 30, we would suddenly become a lot better at this. That was my, you know, there would be some sort of like switch into like exponential growth phase and suddenly we would just know how to podcast properly. <laughs> Unfortunately, we know we don't. Um, it's a technical challenge every single time. Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipette. We are now at episode 31, which is also how old Yoram and I are. Yoram, are you still 31? Um, yes, for a couple months yes. still. Um, yeah, what's been happening? Not much has been happening, huh? No, no, it's not, the, like, it's not long ago since we recorded the last time. Um, mm. Next yeah. week is filled with traveling from both of us. So I am heading on the big plane all the way home to Australia. And Yaram is on a big train all the way down to Munich and then for two days to Austria. Yeah, wow, we already like cool. we've spent a day packing because with a baby, suddenly you have it's it's not even like twice the amount. It's more than that. Like it goes up exponentially. Like just mm. one having one baby is like 10 times more stuff that you suddenly have. Yeah, but to he's like a very stylish baby. So you need like outfits and you yeah. need his fashion, you know? Yeah, he can't be seen twice in the same outfit or people will start talking. Meanwhile, I'm trying to convince myself that I can fit everything. Like, I'm trying to convince myself and EasyJet, I should say, that I can <laughs> that I can fit everything that I need for 10 days in Australia in one hand luggage. Oh, that's... that's <laughs> oh, you're almost coughing still. That's also yeah. um, kind of a, a sign of how long it's been since we recorded. Yarm is still sick and yeah. coughing. And Although I, I'm mostly better, but my, my well, cough then. is turned now into like one of these like v very long-lasting dry coughs that are just annoying and painful mm. and not really doing much Old for anyone. Wheeze. Yeah, yeah. so it's great. I, I took some drugs. There's something which I, I looked it up. I looked up which drugs actually scientifically help work as an expectorant. So they kind of help loosen the phlegm in your lung and then i tried to get it in in germany and that was a big adventure where like i said okay i, I i'm coughing a lot and i'm having problems like breathing and i feel like i'm drowning so i need to get something to like remove all of this slimy stuff from my lung mm -hmm. and then the person's like oh here have some some bullshit tea which is basically the first step of any conversation with a pharmacist in germany they first yeah. off on something that's completely like non-medicinal and i was like yes um you know i actually i have access to tea as it turns out i can buy my own tea at the, the store this is actually a pharmacy please give me drugs And I told them what I wanted it to do. So like the mechanism, it's like um, phlegm loosening. And then I told them the name of the drug I knew that had the active ingredient. Um, and they were like, oh, yes, yes, but we don't have that. How about? And then they tried to offer me again an alternative product, which was like nice. bullshit magic. And I was like, well, no, I actually really would like it to actually have an active ingredient. Please give me actual real drugs. Um, and I said the name then of the active ingredient. And they were like, oh, okay, I guess we could order that in for you. So then I got that. And that was Germany like three weeks ago. And then in London, I went to the store and I'm like, I'm coughing. And they're like, here, have some drugs. And it was exactly <laughs> what I needed. It had the active ingredients. And it actually works. Like, I think it's, it's not something where... There's no placebo. It's it's like chemistry and biology coming together and getting the slime out of my lungs, which yeah. is what I want in life. Like, 
one internal thing, Tegan. Are you recording on the Studio Link thing? I think so. Good. Just as a e? checkup, good. I mean, when the record button is red, that means I'm recording, yeah. right? Yeah, red means recording. So clever. Uh, um, I can cut I that. In most countries, red is the color for stop. Yeah, but it's always the color for recording. There's a very good YouTube channel that's called Red Means Recording. It's like electronic music, but a lot of like how-to DIY stuff. Really so enjoy like, that. I don't know. I grew up in like the 90s, noughties, and I remember red light means the doors are secure. Isn't that a thing? That's not a Isn't reference that, that I get. Did I make a reference? I, I feel like, guys, please call in and tell Yaron that he's uncool and that I knew an Arctic Monkeys reference. And <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, um, I think from we, now... Uh, yeah, drugs. I think from now on we should try recording at like 6.30 in the morning because both of us now have like really early schedules and we're trying to record in the evening and we're all just like completely... <laughs> sleepy all the time. I mean, you're also sleepy all the time, but yeah, no, I'm actually I'm doing much better, and I, I had a good afternoon nap today, so I guess that helped too. <laughs> um, so maybe I'm not actually doing better if I need a nap now in the afternoon because otherwise I'll crash. I think napping is good. Yeah, nap, naps are great. Shall we do the paper? Let's, Let's the paper. do the paper. Wait, let me press then this button here for the paper. the paper of the week and despite the christmas theme this paper actually has nothing to do with christmas yeah actually yeah i think i think if people want a christmas theme they just should just re-listen to last week's episode because we did a lot of christmas stuff there we pretty much burned all our christmas gimmicks no, i found something christmasy for later in the uh, episode awesome, because i don't i think i, I'm I would like you to play already. can you like play um the bells while we read out the title okay this week's paper is called pollination of cretaceous flowers and it's from pnas okay maybe stop the bells now <laughs> that's a very and short festive it's from tong bao et al and they're at the chinese academy of science and also indiana university and why we chose this article i chose this article i chose it because dinosaurs are cool i think i think that was the entire reasoning yeah. I mean, flowers and plants are also cool. And also, I have this really nice memory of us doing a blog post, I think, a long time ago about magnolia flowers. Yeah. I think, Yaram, you wrote, and you were discuss discussing how magnolia flowers actually get pollinated by beetles and yep. how beetles are basically the drunk idiots of the world. <laughs> yeah. So you can tell that flowers, which are pollinated by beetles, often have like much more robust structures because beetles just kind of like amble around drunkly and like fall into the flowers yeah and um that looks a little bit like what's happening here because this this bug looks like part kangaroo and part bug and apparently it just kind of hops from flower to flower but we haven't talked about the bug even yet we, we just should, said okay we should go into the paper yeah so the paper like pollination of cretaceous flowers the first thing i did was looking up the word cretaceous um, because I had no idea what that means. If this is this like biannual flowers? Is this like what? What does this word mean? No, and it is a geological period. Um, yeah, I mean, how would I know? It's not in a very common to speak in your daily life about geological periods. In so English I knew it's a geological me. period because dinosaurs, like late Cretaceous dinosaurs, but I didn't know which period it was. I couldn't tell you like how many million years ago. I think Yoram, you can tell us how many million years yeah. ago it was. It's the the Cretaceous period uh, started 145 million years ago and went until 66 million years ago. Um, so that spans, I think, 79 million years um which is a pretty 
big span, he but I think that's the point of geological periods, right? They, they're not just like an hour or an afternoon, they're a little bit longer. And as I said, the Cretaceous was known for having pretty much the best dinosaurs ever, I think, especially in the late Cretaceous. So like, like what would you say was objectively the best dinosaur? Um, the Velociraptor. I think that That's was objectively the most terrifying and or the worst dinosaur I would say like I don't know if it's the and best isn't dinosaur isn't it from the Jurassic period I don't know if it is but the Jurassic period is the period before the Cretaceous period that I don't know honestly actually I think um, Jurassic Park might have got their dinosaur ages a little bit mixed up but um, I'm sure some yeah. so I actually started looking into this very briefly and I googled um, <laughs> what age was Jurassic Park set and google told me 1997 which is like firstly not the question i was asking but secondly also wrong because it came out in 1993 and 1997 was like the second or third movie so yeah, I was maybe like, it's when it was set like the the, the <laughs> actions in the movie play out in 1997 because it was future tech in 94 nobody oh. could imagine the future tech of cloning dinosaurs of, of that, dinosaurs that it will just take three years um of future oh. tech Maybe that was it. Okay, so I was kind of trying to ask when the dinosaurs... Um, so then I changed the question, like, which dinosaur... Like, the Jurassic Park dinosaurs, what per time period did they come on? And then I just started reading, like, articles which were like, Jurassic Park got everything wrong. Like, they've, they've tricked us and the names of the dinosaurs are... That's not a real velociraptor. That's a different kind of raptor. And um, all of those things. Anyway. Yeah, but both the um, velociraptor and the Tyrannosaurus rex they are from the Cretaceous period and not from the exactly. Jurassic period. So it should be actually, actually be called Cretaceous Park. Which doesn't sound as cool. Yeah. And also the best dinosaur objectively was from the same period. Do you know what dinosaur that is? We'll try one more time. Um, maybe one of the long necky ones. Nah, the Parasaurolophus. That's my favorite one. He has like the, the horn behind his head. Ah, this one. Yeah. And he like goes, wah, wah, wah. you don't know that, Tegan. I know that for a fact. <laughs> like I've heard them in Jurassic Park. They kind of like wah, at each other, which I think is a beautiful mating call. Yeah. I mean, now like Jurassic Park also doesn't hold up because people now think that they had feathers, right? The dinosaurs are pretty much just big, angry chicken. Um, mm. So, and if you look at chicken today, you can totally see how they are still like evil dinosaurs walking on two legs and being angry maybe not chickens but like yeah other like angry birds crows for example Ch chicken can be intimidating but yeah um so, so much for like one word of the title <laughs> the cretaceous flower so it's from a cretaceous period the period where we had a ton of amazing dinosaurs um and also something else happened in the cretaceous um period do you want to talk about the abominable mystery? Is that uh, pronounced correctly? Yeah, the abominable mystery. I guess it's a bit like the abominable snowman, but more mysterious and less snowy. Um, it's something that I guess Charles Darwin talked about, and it's the fact that at the end of the Cretaceous, I want to say, there was this sudden huge radiation of angiosperms, which are all of our flowering plants. And basically, before this time period, there was a lot of conifers, um, gymnosperms, like other plants, um, ferny things, but there wasn't really any flowering plants. And they appeared, and then within a very short period of time, at least like geolog geo geologically speaking, um, suddenly there was they were everywhere and they basically took over. So they just 
moved across the entire earth and they kind of outcompeted many of the other tree species and suddenly they were there and it's a bit unknown what happened during that time that they were able to appear in such large numbers in such high diversity and in such a quick time and one of that the is the mystery yeah and one of the theories is that pollination played a big role because the big difference between the angiosperms and the uh, gymnosperms is that the angiosperms have flowers and flowers have the purpose of attracting pollinators and um, not always like you have the wind pollination of course and so on but one reason plants have flowers is that they attract pollinators that then carry their pollen to other plants and that helps with reproduction yeah Um, that can give them an advantage as far as like traveling further distances um but it can also have like work back on the plant itself where you get encouragement that the plant develops in different ways. So you get this yep. speciation of the angiosperms also to adapt to insects um, as they go. Yeah, um, but so far we don't really know um, if that's true. Like there have been, when you when you study these old things, right, you, you look at... Um, um, you look at fossils and the f- only fossils that we could find were like lots of fossils of like gymnosperms from the Jurassic period and, and, and ongoing and then uh, suddenly a ton of fossils from angiosperms and then also fossils from insects but so far the only place where you, we could have a good idea that um, there's actually an interaction between an insect and a plant was only with um, uh, insects and gymnosperms mm-hmm. that, that we could where we could find fossils um that yeah that that showed this interaction yeah so that's like the non-flowering plants and there we have like evidence of thrips flies beetles and some scorpion flies which i guess is kind of another type of of fly thing um with the gymnosperms but yeah as you said there's nothing showing definite definitively um that the flowering plants were pollinated um yeah by any sort of insect however there is some evidence already out there in the fossil record that there was bugs that ate pollen or nectar um so there's a word which i had to look up which is palinivore which is basically uh-huh. meaning that you get it's like carnivore omnivore herbivore palinivore palinivore means you basically feed on pollen or nectar so mm. there's some evidence in the fossil record that there's um bugs that were palinivores this is based on the fact that they have um sort of mouth parts which were for um eating nectar they've also seen the gut contents of some of them they see like sort of pollen or um nectary bits inside the gut of some of these fossilized bugs and they have also looked at the coprolites of the bugs do you know what that is yoram um no it's their is poo. it the legs it's their poo <laughs> it's <laughs> like fossilized poo um which is also a study i think i learned that from no such thing as a fish like okay coprolite um so they have some evidence that bugs ate the pollen but just because they ate it didn't mean that they were actually acting as an ecosystem service and moving the pollen from flower to flower yeah and being real pollinators so that would need something else <laughs> And um, yeah, so the the fossils that uh, that I just mentioned, um, they are not the regular kind of fossils that you might be thinking of, like the stone kind, where you have an imprint of an animal in some mud or something, and then it's um, uh, petrifies with age, and then you have then like the stony remains, uh, like or imprinted in stone, your your fossil. Um, but the, the ones that we are talking about today are amber fossils. Um, so amber is this um, the tree sap, and that um, 
that also solidified over the uh, over the ages became very hard and can now be found and i mean you know this from from jewelry and so on but also the amber can entrap things when it, the tree sap fell down and um, a lot of the biological samples from from this period we have from amber fossils so that can be like plant parts insects um uh, and maybe like pollen fruit whatever can be Entire embedded. dinosaurs just like entrapped and sap yeah. from a tree. <laughs> like. Insects. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, amber fossils. I think you guys have hopefully you've all seen Jurassic Park and you remember the fact that, um, I don't know, the, the head scientist guy has this walking stick which has the amber on top of it and that's where they originally show getting the, the DNA out of the mosquito trapped inside that amber. Yeah. Um, Very similar concept. And then life uh, finds a way. I think oh, I was beautiful. very quiet, but um, it was quiet. I think you can up it in post, right? I, I up it in post, but um, life finds a way, and then all the dinosaurs escape. Um, so the also, whenever I remember that quote, I think he has like more. Uh, 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 uh. I ripped it from YouTube. Um, I expect the person who ripped it and put it on YouTube um, left it as it was. Um, so okay. yeah, the, the oldest amber fossils they are as old as 320 million years ago so way beyond the Cretaceous period um, or, although there is a little bit of a discussion about this because it's believed that angiosperm trees were the main uh, type of tree that would um, give wait, sorry we have to do a technical that thing that would give the amber yeah um, so the angiosperm trees would give the amber, would give uh, the, the tree saps, but the angiosperms are not uh, 320 million years ago. But still, um, today it's believed that most fossils that are also actually found in the Cretaceous period of the amber fossils are from angiosperms. And um, yeah, and this is also um, the intro to this paper, right? They have they they found a fossil from from yep. Burmese amber, which is yep, from which was. Yeah, exactly, from the mid-Cretaceous. And inside it had a bug. Actually, it had a couple of bugs inside. So it had our favorite bug, but it also had like a little thrip sitting in front of our favorite bug. Mm -hmm. So the bug species they were looking at is... Do you want to try and pronounce it? It's like... Angimodella bomitina genetspnof, which means genus and species, which is new. Yeah, um... Angie Mordella sounds a bit like a luncheon meat to me. Um, Angie Mordella Bordomitina. <laughs> yes. Um, and basically they were just looking, I mean, the entirety of this paper is just them kind of looking at the this bug um, using microscopy, which allows them to kind of get a 3D image of that bug and also using um, a kind of uh, X-ray microscopy as well somehow to, because as I said, there was this um, smaller bug sitting in front of our bug. And unfortunately for the authors of this paper, the smaller bug, the thrip, was sitting right where the, the mouthpieces are for our mm -hmm. bug. And they wanted to see the mouthpieces because this was kind of the very important part about telling whether it had the right kind of mouthpieces to kind of pick up the pollen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they had to I, do... What I found crazy is how they did all these non-invasive techniques in this paper. So they had now this fossil in amber. Um, mm. They did this micro CT, um, what you might know from the doctors. Um, <laughs> so they could reconstruct a 3D image of the bug already. And there's in the paper that we link, it's a, uh, it's open access. Um, there is um, a 3D graphic from the bug, mm -hmm. and I found that already quite cool that they could, from a yeah. rather small sample, reconstruct it at a, such a high resolution. And um, yeah, and then they did confocal microscopy, um, 
which is, I think we explained it a little bit in a previous podcast, but just to, to make it brief, is that you use fluorescence um, for your imaging. So you shine a light of a specific wavelength at your sample, it's absorbed by the sample, and some of it is then um, given away as fluorescence at a different wavelength. And with smart filters, you can just see the emitted uh, fluorescent signal and that gives you can give you much clearer pictures because you sort of tune out things that don't do fluorescence and therefore you can uh, much easier focus on just the things that uh, that are interesting to you and the interesting thing here that they cared about while they used to confocal uh, microscopy for where uh, was the pollen because mm -hmm. there was pollen on the bug yeah shall we start with the bug or shall we start with the pollen um I mean, we can talk a little bit about, about the bug first. Okay. The bug's name is Frederick. Because <laughs> yeah. I've decided. And um, Frederick, so the first thing they found, they kind of described his morphology, the shape of his body. And they said, hey, Frederick has a really great booty. He's like curved and he's got a declined head. So his head's kind of downwards, um, which means he's a great shape for really getting into those flowers. And on top of that, Frederick has really beautiful, strong flower hopping legs. I mean, if you yeah. look at this bug, it looks really weird. It looks like it's um, kind of made up because it's like an oval bug shape. And then it has just this like kangaroo leg popping out of it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, six at the, it's sticking out at the weird angle in the picture. If you look at the the paper, there's a drawing that's based on the, 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 the fossil. And the leg is sort of extending in bent the wrong way below the bug. But I guess that's from the entrapment in, in amber. But still, it has like these massive legs that are, I don't know, a quarter of the rest of the body's size. Mm, and they reckon that's good from getting from one flower to the other half flowers. So that could also help in the pollination if it's just like doing these short journeys. Yeah. And um, then it has this specialized feeding organs. You said already that they had to deal with um, like this thrip that uh, was in, in front of the face of, of the bug. But with, the, with their techniques, they could look behind it and they could see that the bug is specialized on feeding on nectar. So another point of evidence that it actually get, gets into the flowers, um, eats the nectar and it has a specialized morphology to deal with, like to, to easily access flowers. There's another place where I had to like Google something because it said it had specialized modification of the maxillary palpamere. And I was like, what is a maxillary palpamere? I mean, I can assume it's a part of the bug face. But then I Googled it and Google again failed me and it was like, a palpamere is an individual segment of a palpus. And I was like, that's just not very helpful. So I had to look at pictures of little, it's basically like a little kind of face tentacle thing that the, the bugs have on them to obviously help them get the pollen, get the nectar, I guess. Yeah, and now that brings us then to the pollen, um, because when looking at the, I have to turn my microphone. When looking at the, the legs more closely, they saw that there are these pollen that they could also visualize in the confocal microscopy, and um, until now there is, um, or until this point in the story, you, the bug could still be just a bug that feeds on nectar and hangs around, um, is is close to where the pollen is, but there's no proof that it. Uh, does anything with it that it's actually po uh, using uh, serving as a pollinator um it might just like the nectar very much um but when they look closer at the pollen how it's attached to the legs they could find these hairs um and the hair has a, um, a very even spacing and they're they're longer and usually when you see that these are ha hairs that are on uh, insects that are made to uh, um have the pollen attached to it because mm -hmm. the pollen just fits between these hairs so it seems to be a sort of adaptation to to the to the plant that they can actually 
um, that the pollen can stick very well to the legs. Mm-hmm. They also noticed some um, kind of structural things about the, the pollen itself. So it's this tricolplate pollen, which just basically means it has kind of three different grooves. Um, so it's got this kind of, um, yeah, triplicate uh, structure and they say this is kind of indicative or at least reminiscent of what you see in eudicots so um, dicotyledonous species which are one of the subsections of um, angiosperms and they also looked at the surface of the pollen and they said that that pollen already had some sort of reticulations on the surface and um, the author suggested that this is actually a feature that we see in pollen today and it's a feature that makes it easier to stick in with those leg hairs so those little grooves actually help the pollen get attached onto the leg so they called it um, zoophilus which means it's just um, positively selecting for being attached to animals basically or being with the animals yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so taking all of this together, is this is now the first fossil that shows that um, at least some bugs have been specialized to um, go to the flowers, drink nectar, and then um, take on pollen with them and break, uh, carry the pollen to other plants. Um, yeah, and by, by first you don't mean it's the first that's found, you mean like it's the earliest that the we earliest, have. The uh, earliest, yeah. Yeah. Because so they dated it to like 99 million years ago. Yeah, and that's... Uh, almost 45 uh, million years ago f- uh, or 50 million years ago further away than the the earliest that we knew before so 48 to 45 million years ago was the previous fossil where there was proof that there is this interaction um, which is outside of the cretaceous period so already the next period and now this is the first one that's in the cretaceous period really it, during the time when there was this big explosion of um this big explosion of ang- angiosperms across mm-hmm. the world and taking yeah, so over it might the be one of the the clues the author suggests it might be one of the clues to this mystery like this could be one of the reasons now we have some kind of support of the idea that the development of pollinating insects um was potentially one of the things that helped this huge massive radiation that we saw of the flowering plants yeah yeah, and then they end with a nice little um, like visual artistic reconstruction of the little bug, like several of the bugs pollinating some imaginary flowers or some flowers of the time, which is, is quite lovely as well. Yeah, yeah, that's Did very... You see that in the paper? It's a very nice drawing. Um, mm. So you should check that out uh, just for that alone. What I found interesting about the paper is that its structure was so different from what I know from like the molecular biology stuff that we usually look at, right? It didn't even have a section called results. It's, it has an abstract, then the discussion, mm-hmm. and the discussion includes the results. And then there's a lot of um, talk about the systematic description and notes, which is, I mm-hmm. guess, for like a rather paleo- paleontological paleontology paper mm-hmm. um it's rather I'm not sure. i think in this late in this part yeah there wasn't really experimental as except for like the the imaging right so the, yeah. the imaging but then you have to describe that methodologically like what exactly you did so they didn't have like and as you said it was non-destructive so there was no parts where they're like cutting into the bug and like taking the dna or anything like that yeah. so it's it's a bit of a different style yeah and I guess the main important stuff is the dating and then, yeah, the imaging matching the dating. And this is kind of the, the two big things that they saw. I'm just looking, I, I'm, I didn't look at the material methods before and I'm doing that right now. And it's just so so cool to to read like a very different material methods from what I usually re- uh, see in papers. Mm-hmm. And usually it's just like, yeah, we did this in extraction and we did this and that sampling. Here they say the amber peas came from a mine uh, in uh, northern Myanmar. And then they did like this dating of the, of the amber, amber and uh, that's like the 98.8 
a million years ago. That's why they come up with the date actually for for their sample, because they could like yeah use the uranium and and um, lead uh, residues or or the dating of these two these these two atoms and so on. Like it's it's very cool stuff that I um, usually don't really see. That's why I like this paper as well. So thanks for bringing that paper. It's also kind of this argument that even if you speak fluent English, you don't necessarily speak scientific English. And even if you understand how to write scientifically or like make your even like talks or writing um, in your field, like it's completely different in different fields as well. So this is all a very specialized um, field, a skill, which is kind of a reminder when you yourself become like a little bit more experienced in that field to take it easier on your grad students and your master's students because it's not something intuitive it's it's stylistic really and it's um it's not even something that's like objectively the best way necessarily it's something we've kind of decided as a um as a field to do these these certain ways of of writing and, and speaking as well yeah um yeah so check out the paper pollination of cretaceous flowers um it has some really cool pictures of bugs and now we know how all of that happened with the angiosperms and uh, like the, the should have we should have done something about the flowers and the bees and we missed that opportunity but now it's gone and forever and we move on <laughs> or do you have something more to say no i was gonna say i always like as a child i never really got that whole let me tell you about the birds and the bees thing it was just my like my favorite plant it's such a weird thing because like the idea is like you know let me tell you about the birds and the bees this is now a discussion about sex but like thinking about birds having sex is just the weirdest thing to me like it's just and yeah. bees like I, I mean bees don't do they even I mean it's like the queen bee who gets all the action and like then the drones I think like the males who get to pollinate her die like is that the kind of conversation you want to be having with your children like yeah. I don't know I also I don't I I don't see how these these two examples are so far away from human biology that there's really mm. very little you can learn about re- sexual reproduction from looking at how flowers uh, or plants or bees or birds do it. In Germany, I think we say um, uh, flowers and bees. Um, flowers and bees. Yeah, and probably... Well, that seems... That makes more sense because it's like it's saying, "Hey, this is like broadly across nature." It makes a bit more sense than the birds and the bees. Yeah, to but me. still, if you say like, "Look, this is how uh, reproduction works," so there isn't so pollinator you need to that find comes a third in. Like partner. A, a different yeah. species comes in, takes your sperm, and brings it <laughs> to your partner. And Despite the fact that you yourself have both the male and female parts, but you don't want those male and female parts to mix, so you've <laughs> got to like get a pollinator to come in and like yeah. be involved in this whole shit. And by the way, you got to make yourself super pretty to get the pollinator to come in the first place. Like maybe spray some scent, maybe like some bright colors. This is kind of yeah. yeah. So this is really. Um, I mean, you're a father now, so you will have this opportunity to tell all of this random bullshit to yeah, your maybe, child. In, maybe I'll, in 10 I'll or so give years. it like. I'll have some fun with it and go and, and be like, this is like how the bees and the flowers do it and they do it just like humans do. And Were you the one who told me once that you're going to try to be as much like Calvin's dad from Calvin and Hobbes as possible? Or is that somebody else? <laughs> no, I would like to do that. <laughs> I would like to be like Calvin's dad. Um. Yeah, I'm, I'm constantly shifting my idea of uh, education between like being very like precise and correct and explain everything to the best of my knowledge or to sometimes mm. just make up some facts and then have a have a laugh when he goes to school and says some like nonsense that he picked up from me that 
I don't know, that the mm. sun makes a noise that you can only hear when you're a grown up or something like this. And um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I probably won't do that. I think it will just re uh, result in bullying of him. And I don't really want yeah, that. Yeah, I think you want to try and limit how much your kid is picked on as much as possible, right? Like the world is already hard enough. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we already played the jingle oh. and then didn't do it yet. Uh, my favorite plant this week, it's my turn. And, Yay. Um, I'm pulling a Tegan and I will just talk about something I wrote about last week for the Advent calendar that is still ongoing. Um, when you listen to this episode, you can check out our Advent calendar. And I wrote about holly, um, holly or Ilex aquifolium. It's a evergreen shrub um, or tree, depending on, on the size that it grows to, but it can grow to the tree size. And in some countries, and I think not so much in Germany, but I think especially in the UK and other English-speaking countries, holly is a very important festive decoration, right? And um, mm -hmm. has, it has these spiky leaves, and I don't really get why people would put these spiky plants in their home. But They're pretty. I, yeah, I, I think um, it's just because they are evergreen, and so you can have some nice green color in your home um, from plants. If you don't, like, uh, Tegan's just sitting under a massive uh, fig at... Uh, mm. Oh, is it a fig or a ficus? It's 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 the same thing. Like fig is just the generic term for the ficus family. This one is a fiddle leaf fig, so ficus lorata. Yeah, but if you don't have that kind of green in your home, then you can take holly home because it's evergreen. And an hmm. interesting thing about this plant is that um, there was a study about it already back in uh, 2012, where um, some researchers uh, noticed that on the same tree you have like very spiky leaves and very smooth non-spiky leaves, um, and they're growing on the same tree. Uh, so it does, it's not a, a standard protocol for a leaf to get to get spikes um, on a tree. And then when they investigated or looked a little bit closer, they saw that all the parts that are accessible by goats or other hmm. herbivores. Um, they were much more likely to be spiky. So the top of the tree um, has smooth leaves and the, the bottom part of the tree has very spiky leaves. And that uh, gave them the idea that this might be just a defense mechanism that when, when there's grazing happening on the trees, all the new leaves that are formed, they get spiky. So it's less attractive to goats or other, I think they also talked about deer and so on. But I just like the imagine of like these mean goats going at it at the tree. It's very clever from the plant's point of view because this is one of the problems with defense. Like whenever you do something to stop yourself from getting eaten, usually as a plant, you use a lot of energy. So making these spikes is actually energetically costly for the plants um, compared to just making like the normal boring round yeah. leaves, I guess. So in this way, they're kind of like checking where they put their resource and be like, all right, here we don't need it, but we need to like defend this part and let this part be free. It's it's very like logical and it's it's quite intelligent as much as you can use that word for plants. Yeah. Um, and there's also a very interesting mechanism behind it because uh, usually when you have like this differentiation, you have, uh, it's often based on a transcriptional regulation. You have transcription factors that are activated at a certain time of life of, of the plant. And then, this results in in some expression of a gene and then you have a, a response. It can be a change in morphology, it can be a, like a defense compound, something like this. But uh, these methods of regulation can be transient or rather short-lived. You have to have, uh, there's very different um, systems there, but often when your transcription factor, when your trigger goes away, then also your response declines again. Um, mm -hmm. But for these trees, it's important to, to keep 
the defense mechanism active for a longer time, for a longer period, because it takes a while until all the leaves have grown um, and become spike became spiky at the bottom. And so what they do is that they they in this in the study they looked at the the spiky leaves and the non-spiky leaves and looked at the DNA methylation, which is a part of the epigenetic code. Um, so it's not the DNA code itself that's changed; it's the modifications um, on the backbone that are changed. And when they looked at this, they could find that there's a difference between the spiky leaves and the non-spiky leaves. So the plant is actually changing its uh, genome epigenetically. Um, to adapt to the grazing of the goats. Um, and yeah, and oh, sorry, no, go I was going to say you, Joram wrote a nice blog post about this as part of day ten of our Advent calendar series. It's originally um, based on a paper from Herrera and Bazaga in 2013 which came out in the Botanical Journey of the Linnaean Society. So you should definitely go and check out the post and check out the original paper. We'll put the link in the show notes as yeah. we usually do. Yeah. Um, and now it's your turn. Okay, so um, last week and also this week, I was saying that we wanted to do it kind of Christmas themed because we've been working pretty hard at making this advent calendar where we're posting new stuff about plants and their relationship to Christmas every single day, which, as I said, a lot of work, um, but kind of fun, actually, and kind of pushing us creatively so last week when we podcast I told Yoram I wanted him like at the last minute I was like Yoram make sure that your um, scientist universe scientist has something to do with Christmas like at the very least make sure their birthday is in December and he came back to me and he was like it can't be dumb there's nobody <laughs> no I didn't say that I said that I couldn't find anybody because I didn't take the time to to search for someone so today about 10 minutes ago no a little bit longer than that i googled female scientist christmas <laughs> and i immediately came up with a list on mental floss which is called six great scientists who were born on christmas day so oh. quite unsurprisingly um the majority of their scientists are men and white men at that and i think also mostly white european men so we have um john phillips geologist william gregor a chemist and blah blah um richard shop who uh, he's from the US, okay. Um, Gerard Herzberg, who sounds German to me. Yep, yeah. born in Hamburg. Uh, Isaac Newton, who was maybe born around Christmas. We're not really um, sure. Uh, Adolf Windeus, again, sounding quite German. Um, but we also had one female on the list. So one out of six ain't bad, <laughs> um, I guess. Yeah. It ain't great uh, either, but it's it's not too bad. It ain't great, but these are all quite historical, I would say. I mean, they have people like Isaac Newton and this this Windeus guy is from like the 1800s. So um, the female they have is Inna A. Dobrovskina, um, and she was born in 1933, and um, she died quite recently, actually, in 2014. Okay. And I'm just trying to see. So there's not much information about her on um, the internet. I found that she does have a website in German on Wikipedia or a page on, in German on Wikipedia. So I kind of did a Google Translate of that because uh, <laughs> German reading is too much effort for me. Um, but there's nothing in English. And when I Googled her and looked around the internet, there's not very much on her. But what I like about her is that she also fits in very nicely with our paper of the year. So she's a paleobotanist. 
and she is arguably the world's leading authority on plant life during the Triassic period. So not during the Cretaceous, but during the Triassic period, which was um, a little bit earlier, so 252 to 200 million years ago. So she actually quite literally wrote the book on this topic. Um, There's a book called Triassic Flora from Middle Asia, um, which uh, she wrote, and it's kind of like the, yeah, as I said, the book on this kind of um, period, which, yeah, she was born in Moscow, so, um, yeah, and in, in December 25th in 1933, um, and she grew up in kind of the Soviet Union time. Um, she was kind of on the a little bit anti-government side so in this um, website they're saying that she actually risked being put in jail because she was distributing um, anti-party pamphlets against the communist party at the time and um in this kind of ussr period unsurprisingly also because she was a woman she was confronted with um workplace sexism so there's a story on the um mental floss website where they talk about how one of her she was on an expedition um and one of her male subordinates her subordinate mind you was like uh i bet you can't drink this diluted alcohol which is i mean firstly who has decided as a society that that's how we're going to judge our ability or credibility as human beings or whatever um so of course she did that not only did she take the shot which they say is 44 millimeters but maybe that's the european like it's 30 millimeters i think anyway she took apparently an entire glass full of the undiluted alcohol so like 250 mils um and was like booyah and did kind of like a crotch bam i'm imagining no disrespect i imagine (laughs) she was just like hey take that um and afterwards nobody tried to challenge her again but this is kind of the sort of bullshit that I mean nobody needs to have to show how manly they are in that kind of like in a work environment Um, but it seems like that's quite standard and it's especially um, seems like it's kind of a thing when you're involved in these expeditions or like on sites so like the paleo um, uh, kind of sites and if you're interested I can also put a link in the show notes I read a really interesting essay actually um, from the great, uh, I forget the name of the book. It's this um, collection of the great um, scientific writing from um, America from a few years back. And it's actually talking about women who work in um, geology or archaeology and they go to these remote sites where there's digs and they're trying to get access to ruins to write their thesis to study them and do science on them and they're discussing the sexism at these sites where in some situations because it's such an isolated community and it's often just kind of run by one leader and often one male leader there were situations where these women were basically prevented from being on the site unless they were willing to make certain compromises which of course was like letting the the male leader of the site kind of flirt with them or even go further with them so i will also put a link to that um uh, story in the show notes but it's kind of like a situation where the sexism that we know in the lab and in the working environment can get even more extreme when you have these situations of isolation and especially when you have these kind of isolated situations with a very um, steep local um, power hierarchy where there's just kind of like one person in charge. 
Um, anyway, as I said, back to Ina Dobrovskina. She wrote the book on the Triassic period, so she didn't let the sexism get her down. Um, in the late 80s, she actually immigrated to Israel and she became a faculty member at the Hebrew University um, in Jerusalem. And um, yeah, she traveled around the whole world looking at different um, Triassic deposits. So she was in China, France, Austria, South Africa, Russia, US, kind of went everywhere. And as I said, she wrote the book on the subject. And she, as I said, she died recently in Israel in 2014. So that's um, Ina. So yeah, thank you for, for bringing, uh, for bringing that. that Christmas related amazing female scientist. Yes, exactly. Christmas themed and dinosaur themed or at least um Yeah, it's a geographical it's a, history. I should what, have looked geological up just, um geological fun facts and everything. But there's another now we move on to the bias um topic. That, oh, yeah. Uh did you prepare one because I have one. You you prepared one, I hope. Yeah. Um I but don't Oh yeah, let's do the Christmas music. If I don't even have a jingle, then we, we can at least have jingle bells. Um, so my survivor, my, my bias, um, <clears throat> is a statistical bias. It's called a survivorship bias. Um, I think it's also a rather <gasps> common one. I know this. Um, there, but there's a story that I I read somewhere at one point um, that I quite liked. It was it's from the Second World War, and the British engineers from the airplanes, um, they were thinking about where to reinforce the airplanes. And so when the planes came back from from their missions, they looked at where there were all the bullet holes in the plane, and they thought about mm -hmm. reinforcing these areas. Um, mm -hmm. But then somebody said, like, look, maybe this is not the smartest idea. We should reinforce the areas where we have no bullet holes because every time one of these areas are hit uh, is hit then the plane crashes and it doesn't come back to us so we never mm -hmm. see the bullet holes because the whole plane crashes and disappears and this is a statistical bias that can also happen in um yeah in, in your samples uh, depending on how you collect your data you might lose some bits already before the da data collection and that mm -hmm. then distorts your conclusion from it um There's also another like uh, example here that's on the website that I, that I found about the survivorship bias um, where they talk about cats. Um, in 1987, mm -hmm. there was a study where they said there um, are the, the likelihood of surviving a, f a drop from a building for a cat is higher if it uh, falls from a higher um, A store a floor than from than from a lower floor, and they had some explanations about like terminal velocity, and then the the cats prepare for impact, and therefore they, <laughs> they have like glide less on the way down. Like they kind of like open up their little wing flaps and like yeah, and they have the therefore fewer injuries and so on. But then somebody pointed out that the cats that didn't make it that have like that had two bad injuries, they were not brought to the veterinary uh, to the vet where they were actually mm -hmm. collecting the data. So yep. the dead cats didn't make it to the data collection and therefore they just saw survivors of uh, um, high falls and survivors of low falls and um, uh, then had the conclusion that um, because coincidentally the few cats that made it that survived the, the high drop, they didn't have as severe um, uh, injuries. They From that they constructed this whole idea that it's better to fall from a bigger height um, so yeah, that's the survivorship bias. It's very important to check, like, do you lose data before you even collect it and uh, to account for that. Can I be really cynical and add yeah. something? 
I think it also applies for like PhD students or scientists. Um, if you look at like the the ones who go through the system and stay in the system, you can say, oh, look, the ones who stay in the system, they have this personality. And therefore, this personality is what makes them survive the process, like the stressful situation. But like maybe you're the ones who are selecting against something beforehand. And then you have this like other fact of like, yeah. I don't know. I think I need to develop that more. But like, <laughs> no, but if I, it's, I think it's it's true. Like we often look at like what defined the people who, or what the people did, um, or need to, uh, to to do better during their PhD time um, that finished the PhD and that continue. Right? They are then mm-hmm. the ones that sit on boards and decide what PhD students might need to perform better. And they also are but the you, ones who are there still to get their opinions across, right? Yeah. But if you don't have exit surveys, yeah, and exactly the exit surveys, you should ask those who drop out why they dropped out and figure out how to address these issues because these are the ones where you lose people. Um, people who already finished the PhD, obviously they also can uh, do with with more support. But if you want to uh, overall get more people finish their PhD and do better, look at the people who drop out. Which is especially the situation if you see that a certain type of person is dropping out more often. So maybe it's somebody from a different class background or from a, a different what whatever, like gender, race, religion, whatever. Yeah. If you notice that's happening, then you've got to think about the fact that asking the people who are still there what might help is not necessarily what you need to be doing because they are already kind of doing okay and that they're there, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's my bias that I brought today. Um, and now... Where, no. where, where is the button? This is the button. Jingle bell. Oh, it's off. <laughs> I'm a terrible DJ. Do we have one more week of Christmas still? I think we have time for you to like work out how to sync up those music still. No, too late. Um, this is the last episode before Christmas. Um, is it? Yeah, because then Chris, this this will come out on the like 19th or whatever it is. And wow, then, happy Christmas, everybody. If you're not religious, neither are we, but we like to pretend. <laughs> we hope you have a nice holiday period, whatever your holidays might be. Um, Wouldn't that yeah. go better at the end of the episode, all these well wishes? But it's fine. It's better to okay. do it twice than not, not I'll at all. I'll do it twice. Also, if Christmas is not happy for you, that's okay. Um, look after yourself. And like, if you feel like you really need help, seek help if you can. Um, yeah, Christmas is not always happy for everyone. Yeah, especially and for our scientist friends who have to have to spend the time often away from their families because many of us or our peers work abroad and sometimes on the other side of the continent and you can't all, uh, go back every year or uh, not always. So I, I remember that in the institute we had sometimes people, I mean, they, they may do by having their own little celebration together, like all the people that are left behind um, or couldn't go home. Hashtag left behind. <laughs> we didn't go after. And like personally now, I'm in a situation where I have to choose to either be with my family or be with Yaram at Christmas. And that's just like, it's really, really hard, man. I thought you would say that that's a very easy choice. <laughs> just like I don't know. Have you met my family? Flights.google. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I've, I've met a few of them now. And so far, I don't know why you're always saying, saying these terrible <laughs> things about them. These terrible, terrible things. Hi, mama. Hi, papa. I love you. <laughs> Also, sister. Um, I have a fun fact that's completely unrelated to plants. Um, I was last night quite bored and scrolling on some kind of weird listy lista- listicles, and I found one on kind of creepy creatures. Actually, I think it was like a something where people have s- 
a photo of an object or an animal and they're like what the hell is happening here and then they ask reddit or they ask an audience and they get the answer Mm -hmm. and what i saw is the creatonotus gangus which can you guess what kind of animal it is no say the name again creatonotus gangus no idea what if i told you it belonged to the family arabidae arabidae Erebidae. I don't know. Um, it means nothing. It's it's like a moth. Um, okay. Something flying. But I want you, Yoram, can you now Google um, male creatonotus gangus? Like creatonotus gangus. Now the um, connection was too bad to, for me to fully understand how to spell it. Ah, okay. Um, everybody go home and Google this or we'll put anyway some link in the show notes. But it's basically this kind of um, butterfly moth insect. Um, and the male of this is kind of terrifying because it has these special like scent glands. So um, it has something called coromanta and there's like four of these like feathery things, like feathery stick things that kind of come out of its butt and they're to, they inflate. So they come in and they go out again and um, they're there to make some scent and to attract the ladies. Um, oh, this looks terrifying. It's so terrifying. It's just like... It has like these the butt tentacles. Uh, it has butt tentacles. And like part of me when I see this, I'm always like, holy crap. I mean, it, it just looks... It's really upsetting, honestly. Um, yeah. It looks like something from like one of the, the alien movies. Um but then also part of me is like, why don't male humans make that much effort? Like, that's a lot of effort that that, that moth is going to. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy <laughs> I don't have to have butt tentacles. <laughs> With scent. It's like smelly butt tentacles. It's not just butt tentacles. Oh, this Feathery is... smelly butt tentacles. And on the Wikipedia page, they, they fail to show an image of the inflated butt tentacles. Yeah, you got to go to Google in- Images, guys. But we'll, we'll put a link in there because... It's, oh it's just truly horrific. Yeah. Like, and it when you look at it, you can't really tell which way is up originally. Like, anyway, um, that's something fun for you to show your family if you run out of conversation at the Christmas table or just or whatever like straight out the door. Like have. when you come in. Um, oh yeah. Just immediately go for this and be like, "Hey, do you grandma do you- being racist? Show her the moth." <laughs> Butt tentacles. Okay. Father explaining to you why you should cut your hair, get a job, and vote for the liberal, uh, the, the 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 conservative party. But tentacles. Oh my god. Um, okay, so to to cleanse our minds now. No, I would just like to add one more thing. I imagine myself owning a company at one stage where I have little Christmas crackers, and every single Christmas cracker just like has a picture of this guy with his butt tentacles. Wouldn't that be beautiful? That would be beautiful. That would be beautiful. <laughs> All right, go on. Okay, I go on now. Um, um, I have something that's a very short story that uh, I think somebody also on Facebook brought to us, but I actually saw it before that, um, which is the vegan leather made from cacti. <gasps> um, that was one of my fun facts. Oh, sorry. Monster. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. You go. Um, I mean, there's actually not that much to tell about it. For some reason, they managed to have a lot of media coverage with nothing on their website, really. But mm. the idea is that they use uh, cactus material and then process it in a way that you get this leather texture and leather properties without having to kill any animals for it. Um, so that sounds actually like a, a pretty cool 
like concept and, and, and project and, and product. But yeah, as I said, when I checked the website uh, from them, there is a long list of press articles about them, but no information of availability or how they do it or anything like that. So I hope it's, it's real. Like they managed to convince a lot of journalists that it's real, but um, it's, it looks, it looks uh, really cool, like a really cool new material. I mean, now that was also my other fact. So now I have to do something horrible again, which is really your own fault. <laughs> yeah, I, I can take it. Drumfish jaw. Google it. Google what? Drumfish jaw. Oh, already these words make me not so happy. Okay. Ah, oh, it's one of these it's crazy fish that have a ton of teeth and they look like human teeth. Yeah, but it's just like all teeth. It doesn't have like a row of teeth. It just has like all teeth. The whole plate is teeth. Mm. And it has like, yeah, then there's these pictures where they open their mouth and yeah, it looks just like it has several rows of human teeth behind each one another. Mm. Apparently um, it eats oysters, so that's kind of its thing. Uh, it needs a lot of teeth to crush those oysters. Yeah, I... All right, I'm done with disgusting things. I, I think it's your I think fish. I actually don't have very many fun facts today, to be honest. Okay, then I'll... Um, yeah, that's it. I'll do another. Oh. Sorry for taking yours. Um, there's one thing that I have <laughs> on my list for a while now that I wanted to share. It's a tool that was developed called Cell Paint, um, and it's based on Unity, the graphic engine that's uh, used in game development. And mm-hmm. um, what you can do there is you can... Um, click together you can you can construct your own cell um and then use it as a 2d graphic but the cool thing about it being done in this graphics engine is that all of these um molecules that you can add they have a volume and they sort of stack up and then you get these like very realistic looking images um from these cartoonish um molecules and they did it for hiv mostly so far Mm -hmm. um uh so it's and all the cell parts that you can select there they're made for human cells so it has a very narrow uh, specific focus as of now but as far as i understood it they constructed it in a way that it can be adapted um, also to import other graphics so you can have um yeah you can theoretically put in your own library of um of uh, molecules and then you can construct plant cells or anything like this but i just really like the look of it as well you should give it a, a try if you go i'm not going to spell if you i think if you just google cell paint mm-hmm. and, i did that and it works yeah then you can get uh, see the images and i played a- around a little bit with it um obviously i don't really have a use to to make hiv related images mm-hmm. Um, but they are quite beautiful yeah and it it works really well um and so on and then yeah it's just fun to drop all of these molecules in there and see them like push each other away and so on um, because they all try to occupy their own volume um can you do it online as well or no, is it you just have to download thing? it but uh, i think okay. it exists from mac and windows and um yeah so and they even have a virtual reality version of it um, that I didn't try because I don't have a virtual reality headset. Um, mm-hmm. But it must be really cool to sort of drop into into a cell with your VR headset. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that. Um, and then I have one that I wanted to show you specifically um, because uh, it's just so uh yeah it's it's from australian researchers and Yay. they uh, 
Uh, sorry, I had to cough there. Um, <laughs> it's an open access paper, and it's called Deconstructing Climate Misinformation to Identify Reasoning Errors. And the cool thing here is that they not only have an abstract, they also have a video abstract. And I'm going to play this here briefly. Um, I hope you can hear something in a minute. <laughs> There's a new report out on climate change. I heard climate change naturally in the past, so what's happening now must be natural. Sorry to interrupt, but actually that argument is misinformation. Uh, who are you? John Cook. I research how to stop misinformation. Well, you're not doing a very good job. Fake news is everywhere. But what can you do about it? Well, the antidote of fake news is just a little bit of fake news and a dollop of explanation. What? We can inoculate people against misinformation by explaining the techniques used to distort the facts. In other words, explain the poor Should we stop the video that yeah. we don't like so hit copyright infringement? I know, I think it's fine. It's all, all open access. Um, but yeah, so the situation is, is like these first two people that you hear, they're sitting at a table and then um, having a coffee and talking about uh, climate change. And then a guy just like pulls up his chair to their table and it's like, actually, that's wrong. And then um, the last guy that just came in, he also pulls up his chair. And these are the two researchers, which I found... Like, I think it's a little bit meant, meant to be a little bit funny, but also, like, that's not the nicest behavior if you see somebody talking to just, like, pull up your chair to their table and um, <coughs> explain them how they're wrong. Um, but that's not the point. I, I just like the idea that they have this, this video <laughs> abstract um, that is in Australian. And um, the paper itself is also quite interesting. Um, do you personally, like, as a non-Australian, do you find the Australian voice to be, like, soothing and informative? Or, like, does it seem intelligent to you or like um less so than a british voice like i think if i would have to write rank accents it would probably british canadian australian and then at the very bottom most american accents i think to me german where's german <laughs> sorry what German. Worst yeah, German, German. German is the absolute worst. Yeah, German ah, okay, English is the good. absolute worst. As long as you worst. say German's the worst, I think it's, it's, it's I, less... I meant now people who like natively speak English. Mm, okay. Um, um, so, yeah, in this paper... So this is something they, that we can all learn hmm? from, yeah? Sorry? It's, it's something that we can all learn from. We should all go and watch this video before we go to our Christmas lunch so that we can learn how to... I mean, you say it's rude to do it to strangers, but like... To your grandmother, to your aunt, to your like. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. That's a that's a really good point um, because th what they do here, um, they don't want to battle people that are climate change deniers on the field, like on the, on the facts, because that takes a lot of effort. And often these people they don't really care about facts, and they do um, what is also called gisht hopping, I think. No, gish galloping. Um, so they change the topics very quickly. So they say, ah, mm -hmm. yeah, we always had these changes. And then when you say like, but yeah, but the changes were different and the, the amplitude has changed over time, they already move on and say, yeah, yeah but it's also not like methane is worse than CO2, so it can't be from all the petrol engines and so on. And yeah, fighting gallop. them on the facts is really hard because you have to be very well prepared. And if they also then, if it's on a different topic than climate change, then you also have to have these facts prepared. But very often their arguments are illogical like the the way they construct them they say like there have been changes in the past therefore the current changes are not human made 
and mm. this is not you can't draw this, this this link yeah and yeah. so they go, go in this paper through a couple of these fallacies and um, advise to use sort of these deconstructive um, arguments rather than to go on the on the fact of the actual content what they say and you should rather say like it doesn't matter um, the content that you said the, the, the way you constructed your argument is incorrect and therefore your entire argument doesn't work and i ha i don't know how, how i think about this if this is really effective if this really works but i like the way of thinking and um the video abstract explains it well and then there's like the full paper um that goes through a couple of these fallacies and um, theoretically if you just learn what they do in the paper then you can deconstruct most arguments that are done in the i don't know in the gmo debate in the climate change debate in any other debate yeah guys i guess um it's worth a try yeah. at this stage given the recent events of several elections in my new country in other places the <laughs> Just generally, <laughs> how our world is like plummeting into a horrific, horrific dust bowl. Yeah. Um, yeah. Try it on your friends and family. Um, <laughs> I think there's this weird, there's this weird kind of idea of how much you should be doing for the world. And look, if there are people that you love and they love you unconditionally, and it's not going to like make things too hard, maybe just try to convince them a little bit. Yeah. to move in, in a direction. I think that's also my approach to be like to, to friends and family where I have the feeling that there's still something to be won. I'm happy to discuss and share and and so on. But to like random strangers, especially on the internet, but also otherwise, um, I if I think like my, my time is too valuable to argue with people uh, all like willfully ignorant people that are out there especially like people like mm. neighbors or something like this where you really like well, you don't really care and you can't really yeah you you can't take the time to fully convince them um so yeah but on friends and families on a christmas dinner i think it's fine if somebody brings out the fact like some if somebody's complaining about uh, greta thunberg um you can immediately go Ape shit on them, I think. <laughs> <Is the right? laughs> Immediately attack them. Um, Actually, yeah, this idea of like just be polite. Um, if you are fighting, arguing with somebody, yeah, just always be civil, be polite. Like, yeah, yeah. being don't go ape shit. <laughs> don't go ape shit. It's never helpful. Um, and I was actually listening to something recently on um, Zealot, which is a really great, also Australian-run podcast, which is about different cults that have existed in the world. And I think one of their most recent episodes, they talk about the Westboro Baptist Church, which you probably all know. Um, it's the church which has very aggressive ways of picketing. Um, they have signs which say God hates, and I'm not even going to say the word, but it's a really nasty word for gay people. Um, they go to the funerals of dead soldiers and... Um, say these soldiers deserve to die because the US I don't know enables gay marriage or whatever there is it's not a nice they're not nice people um but one of the granddaughters of the original founder who was very deep in the church has kind of recently got out of the church and she actually I believe ended up marrying I think it's Megan Phelps Roper she left the church and she married somebody who she originally met online when he was kind of very reasonably discussing with her her views and kind of pointing out some stuff in a very friendly way and I think just that um I haven't really listened to her talk I only heard through this podcast but 
somebody finally talking to her in a reasonable way instead of just her shouting and them shouting back was one of the things which made her switch her mind and um mm. yeah. yeah kind of leave this this horrible horrible yeah. cult yeah so be reasonable be friendly never be an asshole yeah i mean th- that that absolutely in all res- uh, aspects of life just don't be a dick like even if you're if you're angry i mean i personally i am okay with strong words or even like strong actions against like nazis and people like this um but when it just comes to to like opinions in a civil context like at a dinner or something like this i think it's very important not to um yeah not to be aggressive and and um, personally attacking and so on um be be nice make your point and um if they don't believe you when you're nice they won't believe you when you're angry so um it's really the best that you can can do there Mm. um yeah so um that's my my fun facts um do you have a cat fact uh you told me i should look up a cat fact but i didn't really i think we just need to go without having the cat fact this week and have like two cat facts next week okay yeah because i tried to look up cat facts earlier and like i found something which said okay there's a scientifically correct way to pat a cat which i just i couldn't read it honestly i was disappointed so thank you for listening um thank you for um yeah for this whole year like this is the last episode of the year Um, oh yeah so i mean we haven't been podcasting for a full year yet it's only been what six months no but i think we started pretty quickly no i think we started pretty earlier let me just look up when we had it's been many months uh i just have to click on the right button and how hard can that be Mm. um uh, so yeah we've uh, it's a year like the first one we published in the uh, 22nd of february so whoa so it's okay we have month. like an anniversary yeah yeah yeah. we we don't have like Thanks, the yeah. full 12 months yet but we have good 10 months of podcasting as you can tell we're still working stuff out so we've changed the format like oh, four yeah. or five i think we've changed the format like every second episode and we've added no. things and taken things away we um, had a few changes but not too much like we had in the beginning two papers then we had only one paper and now we're doing both the same paper so it's like I like free. that. I think um, this might work for the long term. But guys, let us know in the comments or like message us if you think that's a good way to go. That we just produced um, one paper, but we kind of both discussed it instead of one of us only doing it. Um, if you have any other suggestions, also we love to hear your comments. We always want to know more things. And if you also have suggestions of what we should be talking about or something like that, yeah, just go for it. Yeah. So thank you very much for listening uh, to us for such a long time. Um, also for our new listeners, I think like the numbers went a little bit up. So, thank uh, thank you for like tuning in, um, and consider following us on our social media. Like on Twitter, we are at Plants Pipettes. On Instagram and Facebook, we're at Plants and Pipettes. And we also have the the blog. Yeah, we have the blog. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> You can go on uh, say something about the we blog. We have a really terrible connection at the moment, guys. So the blog is www.plantsandpipettes.com. We normally release stuff every Tuesday and Thursday, I believe. Yeah. Um, and then also we have the podcast, which can be released through there on Fridays as well. But at the moment, as we said, we're doing an advent calendar. So up until the 24th of December, we're going to have new stuff coming every day. And that stuff will all have a slight Christmas theme. So sometimes, I mean, especially as we get towards the end, that Christmas link might be a little bit obscure because we're kind of reaching to um, the depths of our imagination. But um, yeah, please check that out and let us know if you have any ideas of stuff that we should um, write in the next like. I don't know, a few days. 
Yeah. And Oh, it'll only be a couple of days when this comes out. Yeah. Um <laughs> I I'm I have to make up like pre made responses now, um to like the very chopped up sounds that I just heard. But yeah, I um I just uh, I understood that we that you talked about the advent calendar, um, yeah, and yeah, I think that's it. That we always uh, what we always say. Leave us a review on iTunes um, if you haven't done so already. That would be a great mm-hmm. Christmas gift to us. Um, yeah, if you would. and as always, if you tell your friends about us or your family, that's it's always really helpful for us. Yes, and with that, I can only say um, have a nice holiday season. Um, yeah whatever you're doing if you're a Christian if you're a different religion if you're not religious if you're doing something if you're not doing something we're going to take a break so we hope you have um, a great time and while we're not here yeah and stay safe during New Year's Eve I know in Berlin it, it turns a little bit into like a war zone um, so I hope in your respective country wherever you are dear listener there is just no fi- personal fireworks are banned <laughs> because they're not here and I wish they would be um, yeah make sure you remember that fireworks do actually contain real fire yeah be stay safe have a good um uh transition into the new year and then talk to you soon in in january again i guess that's when we will come back together yeah i think we already set up a date for for that so yeah back in january yeah. have a good slide guys goodbye <laughs> oh closing music Ah, uh, yeah closing music is here opening and closing music is by caravana by Philip Cross. Well done. Good point that you brought up. <laughs> Bye.